Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us. Here we are at midweek. So glad that you're with us. We appreciate it. Here's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to talk about the issue of gene editing and livestock. Who should have oversight, FDA or USDA? We're going to talk about it with the Director of Science and Technology for the National Pork Producers Council. We'll talk markets today with Arlen Suderman with Stone X. And President Trump says he'll talk to EPA about the small refinery exemption issue. He's been hearing about this uh, from folks in Iowa and uh, in, in the Midwest Really a key campaign issue, key election issue. Of course, we've also heard before that he was going to talk to EPA about this, and nothing really got done. Will this time be different? We'll talk about it with Emily Score, CEO of Growth Energy. All that coming up on today's program. Hope you're having a good day. Let's uh, check in now with Chris Barron with AgView Solutions. Chris, good to talk with you again. I know you have been talking with a number of farmers in Iowa hit by derecho uh, kind of give us a uh, a recap of what you are hearing, some of the stories that you've heard, some of the things you have seen traveling around the state. Hey, Mike, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Yeah, we uh, we sustained uh, some pretty major devastation across Iowa. It's it just it's just unbelievable still yet today. Um, actually, I'm in Illinois today, but uh, just driving through there. Uh, over the last several days and just kind of visiting with producers. Um, we were very lucky in our own farm operation. We're about 10 miles north of the devastation, but, but, uh, it's just all over the board. There's, there's crops that are leaning and, and probably harvestable. And then there's a lot of stuff that's completely gone, uh, probably, uh, going to be zeroed out. Some of the insurance companies I know are getting geared up to start doing some assessments there and, and uh, the, the crop devastation is just amazing. And, and uh, also the, the grain facilities, um, you just, it's just unbelievable to drive around and see the mass destruction and how wide of an area it was. You know, everybody in our part of the world kind of used to a tornado, you know, here and there occasionally, and it's as devastating as that is, you know, but it, a lot of times it just takes, you know, a, a pretty narrow path, but, well, you drive from north to south in some areas, and the devastations is 100 miles wide, and then in other areas, you know, 50, 60 miles wide. But it's it's just unbelievable to see it with your own eyes, for sure. Well, as you mentioned, some of that crop won't be harvested, but that that will, it, it'll be slow going, right? That's always a challenge to get that down corn harvested. Yeah, I know some of the some of the producers have bought additional harvest equipment. You know, another combine, another corn head. Um, those types of things uh, have been been looked at for those growers that you know know that they, they can get out there and 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 get after it. You know, there's other challenges like you know, do you start harvesting that stuff when it's 30 or you know percent moisture or 28 percent moisture? Because if you don't, some of those cases, when you look at the the stock quality, they're gonna they're gonna have a rapid deterioration of stock quality, and so that's gonna be to be a major issue and then you know as devastating as it was and as bad as 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 things are there are still really good areas of of probably yield um and so you know i think there was a lot more storage removed than there was mm-hmm. crop and so consequently for a period of time during the midst of harvest we're probably going to see 
basis deteriorate and uh, um, that's probably going to be an issue because some of this corn is going to have to go to processors and, and at some point the processors are going to want people to stay away. So I know a lot of people are looking at baggers and, and trying to figure out how to put stuff on the ground. The problem is, is a lot of the dryers were taken out too with the grain bins, you know, uh, so drying stuff can be tough as well. Yeah, those are going to be key issues uh, this harvest season. And then on top of that, for the areas uh, not even hit by the storm, or even some of those that were, there or there wasn't a lot of rain with that storm, was there? No, no, it it's dry. Uh, you know, we right in our area there was there was a sliver of some of decent rain, but we were extremely dry before that. We actually caught almost two inches of rain um that particular day but i i looked we went north and went south and that that line of the two inch rain was about three miles wide so uh and then and then it just basically tapered off so most of those areas only got like a half inch or or less and uh and so it's pretty dry uh i think you know a lot of this crop is is going to be really dependent and then you know as we like said we drive all over the corn belt i think the crop in general is really is really huge and and there are some dry areas but uh i think all in all this is still going to be a pretty darn darn big crop for sure which makes uh you know the market situation challenging Uh, farmers still holding on to some of last year's crop waiting for the right time to sell that and then looking at the big prospects this year that's not helping the price situation what are you talking with your clients about well, one of the things we're looking at is with, with basis. In fact, I'm at a producer's operation here today, and what we've been doing with most everybody, obviously this time of year we're dialing in cost of production a little closer because we can kind of forecast what the yield's going to be. And and everybody we're talking with is, you know, with the exception of the duration area where the devastation was um, higher than APH by quite a ways in most areas, even if, if we shut the rain off from here on out. And so I think a lot of people are trying to figure out what are we going to do, not only if, if a person has a little old crop left, but what are you going to do with all this new crop? And so um, I think basis is, is something that people are going to need to watch really closely. And then the same thing with soybeans. I think a soybean crop is going to probably, relatively speaking, between corn and beans, be bigger than the corn crop as well. A lot of the people we work with use the soybeans as sort of their cash crop. And I think that's going to be a, a dilemma, too, during harvest is figuring out how, how quickly can you move the beans out of the field. And I think now is the time uh, uh, producers really better be getting a plan put together on, on basis and logistics right now, for sure. There were some thoughts, uh, maybe an early harvest. I wonder if those thoughts are changing partly because of weather conditions, but also partly because of some of the things we've just talked about. Yeah, I think although, you know, I in the in the crop damaged areas, I think we're going to see mm-hmm. people get after it because they're almost going to have to specifically on the corn anyway and uh that may may allow people to slow down the bean harvest, but with as early as the beans were planted this year pretty much across the whole area, um we've already um seen that some of these uh, early varieties are already starting to um show that maybe they're going to start turning here a little bit so you know we could be you know in a month from today we could easily have combines rolling in bean fields i think so it's it's going to get here quicker than we think 
Yeah, a month from today would be a little later than some were thinking earlier when they were thinking right after Labor Day, but uh, we'll see how this plays out. A lot of things changing and happening here as we head into the harvest season. Chris, always good to talk with you. Safe travels, and we'll talk again soon. Hey, Mike, thanks a lot. Great being with you. Thank you. Chris Barron with AgView Solutions. Up next, who should have oversight over gene editing in livestock? We're going to talk with Dr. Dan Kovich, Director of Science and Technology for the National Pork Producers Council. You're listening to AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. So there's a big debate on who should have oversight over gene editing of livestock. Should it be USDA or FDA? We're going to talk about that with Dr. Dan Kovich, Director of Science and Technology for the National Pork Producers Council. Dan, thanks for joining us. Before we get into the oversight issue. Let's talk about gene editing in livestock. Uh, explain to our listeners what that is and what's the significance of it. Sure, Mike. Thanks. Uh, you know, pork producers are definitely very excited about gene editing right now. What gene editing is, is a new uh, bag of tools, if you will, to look at making very precise changes uh, within the genes of the pig or, or any other animal, cattle, poultry, you name it. Uh, to do that in a very precise way, to have a very known effect, and I think what's really important for people to understand is, unlike some of the older technology, this does not involve uh, swapping genes between different types of animals. Uh, this, again, is making small, precise changes in an animal's own genome that can really have a big effect in things that we care a lot about, such as animal health, food safety, uh, public health, you name it. So that's why we are really excited about this technology, how far it's come, and, and again, why we want to make sure that it's regulated in the right way so farmers and ranchers have access to it. Gene editing kind of gets lumped in with uh, with uh, GMOs, biotechnology, and it gets confusing to, to some people, especially consumers. Uh, so we want to really explain that. And what are the benefits of uh, gene editing? Well, there's a lot of research going on now uh, looking at, again, some of these small, very precise changes that could really pay big dividends in terms of uh, animal health production. One of the things that we're really excited about in the, uh, in the pork world right now is uh, a gene edit that would make pigs resistant to the PERS virus. Now, the PERS virus is something that our industry has um, combated for a long time. We really just don't have great tools right now. And again, this is just a very precise little change. They can go in and change one gene on a pig and make it resistant to all known strains of that virus. Um, you know, there's other potential applications too in terms of food safety, making animals more resistant to things such as salmonella. Uh, things that could even have public health benefit, for example, looking at influenza. I mean, really, for me as a veterinarian, as I look at this, um, really any viral disease of livestock is is a target for a potential uh, gene editing solution. And that's why we just want to make sure that, you know, farmers don't get left out in the dark as these technologies develop, 
that they're going to have access to them. We're talking with Dr. Dan Kovich, Director of Science and Technology for the National Pork Producers Council. All right, Dan, so that brings us to the issue, who should have oversight over gene editing, USDA or FDA? Why do you feel it should be USDA? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. I mean, one thing that people need to realize is that unlike a lot of other countries in the United States, we don't have a, a discrete set of laws or regulations that deal specifically with biotechnology or things such as gene editing. So, so the reality is, is that, you know, they have to get slotted into other authorities where they're not necessarily a good fit. And, and unfortunately, uh, for a long time, that's been the case with biotechnology and animals. They've been regulated by the uh, FDA under their drug authority. So in a sense, it's, it's looking at these small changes to an animal's genome as, as being an animal drug uh, as being done through part of a drug manufacturing process. And the reality is it basically under their proposal would lead to the animals themselves essentially being living, breathing animal drugs. You know, if you consider their, their genes to be a drug, uh, they're indivisible from the animal. So therefore, practically, the animal is a drug. And, and that's just going to create a whole host of problems in terms of how this technology, how they try to regulate it as it spreads across farms and, and really potentially big issues in terms of trade in animals and animal products internationally. Now, the USDA has always regulated the technology in plants under the uh, Plant Protection Act, and there is a companion law for animals, the Animal Health Protection Act. And, and we feel that that is the logical place for, again, these, these changes within an animal's own genome to be regulated that the Secretary of Agriculture has, has full authority to do that. I, I do want to be clear uh, that we are not asking for this technology to be unregulated. This is in no way um, saying that we don't want to have that regulatory step. We just think that the USDA, who's got a proven track record in, in regulating this in plants, is the right one to do it for animals as well. Who has the oversight now? Well, that's, that's an open question, and it's actually, uh, there, there's people in the White House looking at that right now. Um, according to an old agreement, uh, FDA would do animals and USDA would do plants. But, but that agreement dates back basically to the Reagan era, and, and it's kind of a route from a time when we didn't really have these tools for use in animals. They were, they were very expensive. They didn't necessarily work on, on complex organisms like animals. Uh, so there really wasn't any agricultural application in animals at that time. Again, we've come a long way since then. These new techniques don't involve uh, necessarily inserting foreign DNA. Um, and, you know, we really, really feel that it's important that the United States have a common approach for regulating this technology across all of agriculture not very, very different models for plants and animals. So that's why, again, there's a lot of attention being paid to, is it, is it time to kind of modernize how we regulate this? And our answer to that is a definite yes. So who makes the decision, and when, will, when do you think it would be made? Well, we're hoping that the decision is going to be made, made soon. I, again, this would not require any action from Congress. This is something that the White House, the administration can do and, and, and should do, and, and, and we hope they do it quickly. Uh, if we look, you know, beyond our borders, there's a lot of other countries that are charging ahead with very reasonable 
plans to regulate this technology, and, and we really think we're going to be left behind. It's already had a chilling effect on research, development, this, this specter of living under the, the drug laws, and if we don't get that change soon, we're just going to keep losing ground, and it's really going to put U.S. agriculture at a disadvantage. Is gene editing in livestock being used now in any form? It is not. Um, certainly don't want people to think that, that these things are already out there without having any regulatory oversight. So, um, you know, and when it comes to animals, we do not have, we have not had any GMO animals in the, in the food supply ever. And, and gene editing is not being used in, in production agriculture right now at all. It's not in the food supply. However, again, there's been a lot of promising research done in research settings, animals that have not been used in the food supply, that really shows that this can work and it can be done precisely and safely. Uh, so, you know, we want to get that, that research out of the lab and onto the farm um, in a way that makes sense for agriculture and is, and is not going to put U.S. farmers, again, at a disadvantage on the global stage. So the potential is there, but you, the decision has to be made on what agency has the oversight, and then you have to go through the uh, the procedures that, and the regulations for whichever agency has that oversight to, to meet their criteria. So it's going to there's still several steps here before it would become uh, used in production. Exactly, and that's why we need to get that decision made quickly. Again, the, the USDA has a really good model in terms of how they've looked at this technology and plants that obviously will have to be adapted for animals, but that can be done readily enough. So we're confident that once the decision is made, the USDA will be able to move forward quickly, appropriately. Um, again, this is not about not having this stuff regulated. It's not about It's not about not having all the the necessary safety assessments done and, and, and all of that. It's just what body of law is the best place to do that under. And again, it's the Animal Health Protection Act at the, at the USDA. All right. So we wait and see for a decision on that. Who has oversight, USDA or FDA? Dr. Dan Kovich, Director of Science and Technology for the National Pork Producers Council, has been our guest. Thanks, Dan. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Coming up next, we're going to talk markets with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist with Stone X. Lots to talk about with, uh, you know, crop estimates going on and uh, damage assessment from DeRatio, China making more purchases, a lot uh, happening here. And uh, the president speaking out about uh, talking to EPA about their handling of small refinery exemptions. So we have a lot of things going on here that could Im impact the markets. We'll talk about it next with Arlen Suderman right here on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Let's talk now with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for Stone X. Arlen, good to talk with you. Uh, we have the crop tours going on and estimates coming in. Uh, what are your thoughts as you watch uh, the numbers come in and the, uh, the pictures we're seeing on social media? 
Pretty much as expected. There's some variability out there. It's the crop potential is big, but there are. It's, how I say this, there's enough variability out there, enough issues with dryness and uneven stands, etc., to really keep this from being a real total bin buster type of a crop. Of course, today we get into more of the drier areas of Iowa, as well as some of the more severe wind damage, um, and that's really what everyone's waiting for. But still, pretty good-sized crops, but not, you know, I never did feel like we had the type of consistency to say 188 bushel, 190 bushel yield national-wide that uh, some of the estimates out there were saying early on. So are you sticking with your number or are you changing yours any? Well, our official number is a survey-based, and we'll do that on, on September 1st once again, see what our customers say. Um, and other than that, we just look to my yield models, and my yield models are coming down, reflecting some of the drop in ratings. Um, so we've dropped a, maybe a bushel on soybeans and, and a couple bushels on corn, um, but they're still big crops, and so far we haven't seen anything to suggest that we need to ration demand with higher prices. So the question is, is it enough to get the market's attention that it might be down off of what some had thought earlier? Well, I I do think that one of the reasons that we had the positive response to the August crop report is that the whisper number the trade was trading was much higher than what the average trade guesses were. I think the market really had a handle that this was going to be some big crops. Um, And so we probably priced in the most bearish production information um, that we could have. And as such, that does give some optimism that maybe we've seen some early harvest lows. That's not a guarantee of it, um, but uh, certainly does increase the chances that we've seen some early harvest lows. And when the funds are shorting a commodity for bearishness and you get the worst of that bearishness in, then oftentimes they'll simply take profits and look elsewhere for the money or maybe flip to the other side. What we don't have here is a reason by itself so far to sustain a long rally longer term. That could still come, but it would probably, unless they find something much more significant than we think the next couple of days, it would probably have to come from the demand side, and of course that would be China. Whisper numbers. <laughs> those have an impact on the markets, don't they? they? They work off of those whisper numbers. Yeah, there's a lot of emphasis put on what's the average trade guess going into a report, and whether it's agriculture or any type of uh, market, uh, equity markets or whatever. But beyond that, there's always the whisper number, what the trade really thinks, but they're afraid to put down on their estimates, so to speak. And that kind of influences their buying and selling decisions and what the market has factored in. So what are you seeing with basis throughout the country? Well, overall, basis has held a little bit better than I expected um, with the big crops coming in. Um, that's obviously going to vary from region to region. The places that I'm most concerned about during the path of the duration where we did a lot of damage to storage facilities. Uh, again, though, we also damaged a lot of drying facilities. We're going to make it hard to dry. So that's going to slow the harvest in those areas so they're not going to get as much of a flood of grain coming in. And, of course, where the worst of it is, uh, where insurance allows, we probably won't have harvesting of those acres at all, which will significantly reduce the amount of pressure on the basis. So I think it's a market, try, a cash market, trying to figure out all the pluses and minuses right now and uh, trying to sort through it all. 
What about those holding on to old crop? Rallies are meant to be sold, uh, certainly. Um, could there be something much more bullish here? Yes, there is that chance. And again, it comes down to the demand side. How aggressive do you think China is going to be? What do you think its motivations are, etc.? Um, I don't know if I want to really risk the whole farm on that. Um, so... Um, I, you know, I think this is still a year to hit a lot of singles and doubles and not try to go for the home run that China made offer. But there's a lot of tools out there to, that allow you to protect downside risk while keeping the upside open as well. We're talking with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for StoneX. Well, let's talk China. We've had a lot of announced sales. Are our ships moving? Are we actually moving product over to China? Yeah, it, and we are. Uh, grain sorghum is uh, going over there pretty actively, and I know that doesn't include a lot of our listeners, um, but it does say something about what China's doing. Uh, um, China is, uh, you know, another feed grain and another ethanol component here in the United States, so any grain sorghum pulled out means more corn going into those channels. Uh, but they've really started picking up the corn purchases as, and shipments as well, and I think that we're going to see a significant uptick in soybean shipments as soon as they get those new crop supplies down to the Gulf, which we have started the harvest in the Delta area. Um, so I think those will start ramping up here pretty quick as well. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about what will China do. They certainly do have a shortfall of corn. Um, so it comes down to are they going to open the floodgates to imports? Uh, their temporary, uh, their temporary reserve, we have been saying, will be empty by the end of August. And rumors in the cash market this week in China on the ground would certainly seem to confirm that. Then they have the national reserve, which might get another two to three weeks worth of supply. And beyond that, then it's the permanent reserve. They do not want to. Uh, eat into that permanent reserve. So their options would be open the floodgates of U.S. corn to rotate into that reserve if, as they put lower quality corn out, or do they allow the market to freely ration the demand and slow the demand down? So China faces a, a, a they f need to answer that question here over the coming month, and it has big implications for us and for our corn market. Now on the soybean side, are they simply going to bridge the gap until South American supplies become available? Or are they going to build big reserves because they fear that U.S. and Brazilian ports are going to shut down due to coronavirus here in the months ahead? That's a question that's still unanswered yet and has big implications as well. So China's dealing with both, the flood and, both floods and drought, right? Yes, exactly, and most people aren't aware of the drought. It doesn't get the headlines that the floods do. The floods really did not impact corn and soybean production that much. It was a relatively small area. It's more uh, rice and, uh, uh, and rapeseed production. Uh, when it comes to corn and soybeans, dry areas in North China Plain, we think that there is some reduction in production, but it's very hard to get a handle of how much in those remote areas of China where information really doesn't flow too much. We should start learning more here over the coming month as they start to harvest those fields. Let's look at the ethanol industry. Uh, where are we as far as uh, production and uh, corn demand there? 
Yeah, it's been real disappointing. We had a real rapid recovery, which we've talked about on this program before, through the month of June. And, and then in July, things really started to stagnate as the coronavirus numbers went up and U.S. gasoline consumption really hit a plateau. And so our ethanol demand has plateaued, it seems like, we're down around 15% from pre-COVID levels. Um, and so that, that's rather frustrating for us. We are seeing the coronavirus come, numbers come down. The daily positive count is now down 25 to 30,000 from where it peaked on a daily basis back uh, late July. That's encouraging. Hopefully that'll result in some more lifting of restrictions at some point, people driving more again and consuming more gas and therefore needing more ethanol to blend. But uh, so far it's looking like we're going to go into the fall with a, a reduced ethanol demand that's going to keep our plants running less than full. And what about the the livestock sector when we look at the uh, the packing plants? Uh, we keep hearing what they're back up to, what, 95%, sometimes a little more. Yeah, and, and much of that's due to the social distancing and other restrictions to protect the employees. We did see daily slaughter and hogs yesterday at 483 thousand head which was a new daily high post-covid so that was encouraging but you're right it's been tough to get back up to full and to get current faster we are slowly making progress fortunately the low prices that we have have bought some demand for the product and we've seen more strength in the product market although pork product has kind of started uh, plateauing a little bit of late and that's been a concern for the hog market yeah we've seen uh a lot of interest in in ground pork. It's kind of interesting to see what, when you're in a situation like this, uh, what things kind of take off and uh, find new footing. Ground pork has seemed to have caught the uh, eye of uh, a lot of consumers. Yeah, and it's that change in what restaurants consume versus what Mm -hmm. the consumer does and what they buy from the grocery store. And we're seeing a lot of those changes. And, of course, the industry is trying to adjust to fit that, get the supply chains adjusted appropriately. Yeah, a lot of moving parts here as we head towards fall. Arlen, always good to talk with you. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Mike. Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for StoneX. Up next, after Vice President Pence's visit to Iowa, where he talked ethanol but did not really hit a a big home run by having any kind of announcement on EPA changing its approach to small refinery exemptions. So that that kind of took the luster off that appearance in Iowa. And then the president just recently has now heard again about concerns over this policy by EPA. And the president says he'll talk with EPA about it. Will that make a difference this time? We're going to talk about it with Emily Score, CEO of Growth Energy, next on AOA. information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Ethanol, and in particular, the handling of small refinery exemptions, is a key issue in this election. And just recently, Vice President Pence was in Iowa, and I thought missed uh, an opportunity to really hit a home run with the crowd in Iowa if he'd have come in and announced that the EPA was going to uh, change its uh, position and how it's handling the uh, small refinery exemptions I think would have gone over very well as it was he talked about 
year-round E15 sales, which, while significant, have been offset by the the policies of EPA on the SREs. So he, it really wasn't the, the home run that it could have been. Well, now the president has heard again on this issue and says he will talk with EPA himself about this. Let's uh, talk about it with Emily Score, CEO of Growth Energy. Emily, thanks for joining us. Uh, while I think it's a positive development that the president says he'll talk about this with EPA, We've kind of heard this before, though, haven't we? We have, uh, but it's it's clearly something that bears constant reminding with the president. And we also know that it takes us getting to the president for him to make sure that Wheeler follows through on the commitments made. So we're incredibly grateful for Senator Ernst that she took the time to make sure to elevate this to, to the president's attention. I'm encouraged by the exchange, and we will be watching very closely to see if anything comes of it. Yeah, when I say heard it before, it's when he in in recent times he was in Iowa and heard directly from industry leaders and corn grower leaders, and we thought there was going to be some action after that, but it didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, the, the small refinery exemptions have plagued us throughout this administration. We've already seen four billion gallons of demand destruction as a result of exemptions granted so far. That was eighty-one exemptions. There are eighty-six still pending before this agency. And so it feels like we are a broken record, and yet we have to be because we need a strong renewable fuel standard, particularly in the time of recovery when we're dealing with a global pandemic and drop in fuel demand. Yeah, I, I think it's a really a critical issue for the president in his counting on support in rural America, his base. Uh, and this issue threatens that, I think. And when you, uh, when you look at this issue and how important it is, uh, the president has seemingly the administration has tried to walk a narrow line between the oil industry and the biofuels industry and at times making neither one happy and the the indication is the feeling is they would like to delay this decision till after the election all points indicate that that's what's going to happen is that the the agency um, is going to delay and avoid any type of controversial decision and the problem is that's at the cost of the rural economy um, and you've got biofuel producers and hardworking, uh, hardworking people throughout the Midwest who are paying the price of that. We've got to get this agency to deny the unlawful requests for exemptions. I mean, right now, you have more than 50 gap waiver requests where you've got oil refiners trying to circumvent the law, and they're asking for relief going back as far as 2011. Price of a, of a RIN, a compliance um, RIN, by the way, was a penny. So it's just yeah. it's ludicrous. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. The president, the vice president could come come to the Midwest and and be heralded if they could make sure that the EPA is just following the law. But uh, they're concerned about the oil industry reaction. And that's why it seems like they want to just kind of hold things as it is till after the election. But it, it totally ignores the court ruling that said EPA was not handling this properly. You're right. I mean, it, d- delay um, is just it's ignoring the court ruling. It's annoying. It, it's ignoring the law. Um, and the consequence is it, it's you look at what the rural economy is going through right now. We've got to get onto a road to recovery. Biofuels is the, the beating heart of so many small rural economies. And so we've got to get back to a place where we have the, the policies and the rules of the road. They're followed so that we can thrive and we can get back to the momentum that we have on higher blends like E15. 
We still don't even have the RBO levels for next year, do we? We don't. So EPA has not yet come out with their blending uh, um, targets for next year. I will say, however, I don't want to see those targets unless they address exemptions. Mm -hmm. Show me how you're going to account for exemptions in the calculations that you make. So if you grant an exemption, it doesn't mean reduced blending. So that's really most important. We need to see them, but they have to do it right, most importantly. Yeah, that's key. As we've seen before, it doesn't matter what those numbers are if you're going to undermine them with uh, waivers. That's right. Uh, and so we saw that the 2020 proposed, uh, the, the 2020 final RVOs were consistent with what was, with a deal that was struck with, with the president, that they, that the EPA account in advance for the exemptions so they don't lead to reduced blending. We need to see something similar in 2021. And then we need to see EPA follow this court decision and when they're looking at the 86 pending SREs, you need to deny the vast majority of them. It's consistent with the law and consistent with the court decision. When the president says he's going to talk to EPA about this matter, it brings into question again, how much conversation has he had with Andrew Wheeler about this issue? Well, that's something that we don't know. Um, our experience was last fall when our champions had the opportunity to speak directly with the president help him understand the magnitude of the situation, the importance of these decisions. We did see some positive commitments coming out of that conversation. So the hope is if they have the ability to do the same thing with the president, he will perhaps be a little bit more attentive to how EPA is or is not following through on his directive. Well, there's a lot on the line for the ethanol industry and a lot on the line uh, for this administration and this election coming up in November, that's for sure. Emily, thank you very much, and uh, we'll wait and see if we get any action on this uh, anytime soon. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mike. Emily Score, CEO of Growth Energy. Again, the president says he will talk himself with EPA about this small refinery exemption issue. He didn't say he would make him change it or that there would be changes, just that he would talk with them about it. And the feeling seems to be, indications are, as we mentioned, that the, they want to wait till after the election to make a decision on this. And uh, that is a big gamble, a big risk in states like Iowa and other states in the Midwest that are uh, really really uh, dependent on that ethanol industry and biofuels industry for their markets.